0: This episode may include sensitive stories, topics, or themes that may be difficult to hear. Please take care of yourself and your well-being should something arise for you.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Punk Therapy. Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness. I'm Dr. T, working on my PhD.
0: And I'm the Truth Fairy, coming to you from the underground. Together we hope to inspire integrity, courage, kindness, creativity, and rigor in the fast-growing industry of psychedelic healing. Hello, everyone, our dear listeners out there around the world. Here we are back again for another episode of Punk Therapy Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness. And it's been a while since you've heard Dr. T and I just together. And I've been getting some feedback that people like listening to the two of us together, and we've missed each other. So here we are finally. Without a guest, although our guests are amazing, we love our guests, and there will be more guests, but tonight it's just Dr. T and the Truth Fairy, and some time ago, Dr. T interviewed me about my work, and we are turning the tables, and this time... I'm interviewing Dr. T about his PhD and I was dying to say that you know because of the rhyme <laughs> so uh hi there Dr. T and we're talking about your PhD. <laughs> Yeehaw.
1: G'day everyone. Yeehaw. G'day everyone from Down Under. Yeah. Yes PhD. Pretty huge PhD. pretty huge deal I believe is the. That's
0: Pretty huge deal. And you've been working on this PhD for how long now? This would
1: be my third year now. My first year wow. was part-time, but yeah, three years. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever worked on yeah. one thing for that long before.
0: Wow. So it's been a real commitment on your part. And just for our, our listeners, Dr. T, what is the subject of your PhD?
1: Well, the the title is an ongoing Thing that I keep updating, but the latest iteration is psychedelic healing and interpersonal neurobiology: a qualitative integration. That's the title, and what that what does that mean? Well,
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, the interpersonal neurobiology. I'm really intrigued by, uh, obviously, the psychedelic part too, but. I wonder if you'd speak to a little bit about the interpersonal neurobiology. And I can't imagine that you haven't looked at the work of Dr. Dan Siegel as well for this. Yes,
1: yep, yeah, Dan and his mind Site, Yeah, yeah. It's all, you know, all of these models and ideas, you know, they dovetail into each other really quite well. What I, you know, what I think is going on is that in the psychedelic field, and you know this better than anyone, that if you want to work effectively with these medicines, then a, a somatic and relational skill set that capacity to get get jiggy with someone on a on an interpersonal and neurobiological level, that right brain to right brain, affective, relational, synchronisation kind of um, stuff, uh, you know that, that that is foundational. That's really really important in psychedelic healing. What I'm trying to do is I'm interviewing you know experts in the psychedelic field, experts in the somatic field. Uh, And in particular, experts in both, such as yourself, and asking them, what are they seeing? What are they noticing? What are they experiencing? Like, what is your clinical expertise for using somatic work in psychedelic work? And then once I've interviewed, you know, all of these people and I've transcribed, well, I already have done this, transcribed that. Looked for themes and you know like uh, common commonalities amongst the responses from these interviewees what i'm going to do uh, i haven't done this part yet is i'm going to develop ten core themes that are you know approximately ten core themes that are explaining the role of somatic work in psychedelics and then once i've got my ten, this is the part that i've yet to do as well is i'm going to then kind of take each of those themes and check out the literature on interpersonal neurobiology and just see what that has to say about what they're noticing. So it's kind of like, yeah, qualitative integration is what I've called it. I'm trying to integrate, like, what are people saying about psychedelics and how could we potentially explain what they're saying through the lens of interpersonal neurobiology?
0: I've got two questions that have jumped up already. Maybe first I'm going to ask, why 10? Is there is there is that an arbitrary number or is that something that's starting to emerge that you're seeing? Can you say more about why 10 court?
1: it It is a kind of arbitrary number that I've just kind of thrown out there. Yeah, it, it may be around 10 themes. I think I said 10 because that's how many came out of my master's dissertation. So, yeah, but then it might end up with more. I, I, I'm going to do my absolute darndest to – uh, to try and make it a small list, uh, because because I want to have impact, I want it to say something that's tangible and easy and and like a you know simple uh, as as much as I can. You know, I'm quite a minimalist in some ways, so if I can if I can get it down to ten core themes, I will. But right now, I've got um, so like in in qualitative analysis, you know, you, you've got all these transcripts um, that you've got of people's interviews and all of the words that they said in the interview, and you highlight like different sections of words they said, and then you add like a tag to a certain sentence, which they call a code. And right now I've got, I don't know, like over a thousand codes for the documents, and I'm now trying to like sort them, integrate them, make meaning of them, hopefully arrive at a point that, yeah, some some like central themes emerge from that.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. And of course, I've got another question that's just emerged right now, but I'm going to go back to the one that came before. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, I can see kind of like you're working like an octopus, likely. Can you, for mm-hmm. our listeners, say a little bit more about your understanding of interpersonal neurobiology?
1: Yes, sure. So it's a big... Subject, isn't it? So yeah. you know, the big authors in the field of interpersonal neurobiology are people like Alan Shaw, Dan, and Dan Siegel is is a big one as well. And it is you know, for a lot of the science and research that we know of neurobiology, we're always scanning someone's brain. Right? They they do an activity, or they take a drug, or they you know, or there's something going on with them. So we scan their brain. And almost all of neurobiology that I was exposed to up until a certain point was just one person's brain being scanned. And then at some point, I think people started going, hang on, what happens if we were to put two people in the MRI machine and, and scan their brains? And how 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 is one person's brain affecting the other in the room? And you know, what we've what we've come to learn since we started to really turn our eye to that is that there is this epic, unconscious, implicit synchronization going on, you know, based on the affective tone of one person, the level of eye contact, the prosody of their voice, the posture of their body. There's like a nervous system to nervous system, sympathetic resonance that's going on that is not just a woo-woo, like, you know, people talk about in more like mystical kind of And spiritual groups, they talk about the energy of a room or the energy of another person, you know, and and you might, some people might dismiss that. But I think what interpersonal neurobiology is telling us is that their their subjective experience is actually queuing onto something which is physiologically real. When you are in the presence of one person versus another, your nervous system is, is syncing up with theirs in a way that is measurable and tangible in the brain. And so interpersonal neurobiology is the field of trying to figure out what are the, yeah, what are all the ways in which our human interactions affect our neurobiology?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so what you're you're kind of speaking to, if I may just kind of distill it for a moment, I'm thinking about Alan Shore's right brain to right brain synchronization and Dan Siegel's the neurobiology of we that we are actually changing in the presence of each other. Is that kind of what you're saying there? Yeah.
1: hundred percent. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And when you're in a and, group. Yeah. And-,
0: and that kind of that, mm-hmm. so we're like kind of, it's a two person psychology rather than a one person psychology. That's it.
1: That's it. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. And we can measure yeah. it um, yeah. and it's real. And, and it's, it's so important for our development, which is what Alan Shaw's main, main jam is 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 looking at how the synchronization of the mother to child or father to child or or parent to child dyad how that synchronization is sort of like the bedrock of the healthy development of a regulated Mm -hmm. brain and nervous mm-hmm.
0: system that that begs me that begs the question for me i know we're already going off our script here but i'm wondering how much of your research involves the work of the therapist themselves and how what's happening in their brains is impacting their clients i'm just wondering if any of your research has gone into that territory about the self-work of the therapist uh or
1: yeah. yeah it has actually. Uh, I would say that that's one of the – like that's going to be one of these core themes because almost every practitioner that I've spoken to who is somatically trained and working with psychedelics, they're all saying, you've got to do your own work. You're saying it, yeah. And and someone who I interviewed just a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, they echoed the same sentiment. You've got to be doing your own work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and- Absolutely.
0: Dr. T, what what is the purpose of this research for you? This development, the core themes, what's the purpose of it? And how do you imagine that it'll impact the psychedelic community as a whole? If your research gets out there and it's seen and read.
1: It's it's constantly evolving what what I'm doing this for. (laughs) But where where it started actually was um, I had a conversation with Roz Watts back when I first started the PhD. And I back then I was like, you know, I was kind of divided. I was like, oh, well, I'm really passionate about um the, the somatic world. And kind of like I, I had been exposed to some maps of the nervous system that I guess were something I'd never seen before in the literature and i i guess have been uh, had been exposed to ways of understanding the nervous system which went beyond what current research was saying anywhere in the literature so i was like cool i i feel that there's a discovery here or uh, or i can bring something new to the field and i'm really excited about that and at the same time i'm totally all into psychedelics and i love what they're bringing to the world right now as well and so when I spoke to Roz, I was kind of like, I don't know, do I do a PhD on this or this? Or do I do one part on the somatic work and then I move on to the psychedelic work? And she just totally collapsed it in in one foul swoop. She was like, You you should combine these, do it together. And kind of the way we ended up framing it was that I think what what's going on here is that we have people like you in the world who are, you know, so knowledgeable and have so much expertise, who've been carrying this culture of effective psychedelic use for, you know, decades and decades, or potentially even longer again, if you go to, you know, traditional medicine holders. And I reckon that this knowledge of the body and the somatic and this earth-based wisdom that, you know, you and I talk about all the time is so is known by these people, right? So well. In the academic world, in the literature of psychedelics, and in the knowledge of the people who are running clinical trials. This knowledge a lot of them I think know. This knowledge and may have access to some of it but there isn't many places that they can turn to in the literature to sort of justify working that way in a clinical trial and so the protocols that are being developed for clinical trials and for the sort of the bridging of psychedelic work into community practice it can only be based on the literature that we have to date so my hope was to draw from the wisdom of the underground from the wisdom of the traditional wisdom keepers of, of psychedelic medicines, and try to publish a paper that, that brings voice to those ways of working into the mainstream, into the literature and the, the sort of medical world where those who are running those trials have to draw from in order to justify how they work. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are you seeing? What do you, I know what I'm encountering. I know what I'm seeing. What are you encountering in these these medical models about how the work is being delivered? And I'll be very careful here not to, you know, throw any, anyone under the bus or say that this is the wrong way or not a good way. But um, just like, what's your area of concern when the somatic level is not woven in?
1: Mm, yeah, I want to be careful what I say. You know, because I think everybody is doing such an amazing job in this field, and you know, there's so uh, there's so much to learn, and we're all really excited about it. And so, yeah, I want to be careful, but at the same time, I do notice that there is kind of this because of this competitive uh, energy that I see in the field amongst those wanting to progress it. Sometimes I also see like a tall poppy kind of energy, like someone sticks their head up and then everybody else wants to cut them down and be very critical. I see a lot of like hyper criticality of, of people in the psychedelic field. Um, but yeah, I, I do also see that there, because of this raciness, this speediness in combination with the fact that I think we live in a culture that is kind of immature in our uh development of a culture of emotional safety and healing you know i feel like we we've we have gone far away from that as darsha calls it you know from a culture of collaborative companionship into a culture of competitive detachment right and in my eyes psychedelics are agents of you know collaborative companionship they support that style of culture and so we've got a whole lot of people who are, who are, you know, myself included, who've been brought up in a culture of competitive detachment and we've got our hands on psychedelics and we're, you know, we're running with that. And I think that, yeah, maybe there is, there's a lot of risk there with running too fast and not bringing a depth of maturity to the work. So, Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. and why is the body important for a depth of maturity in your in your view and what you've spoken? Why is the body necessary for us to mature our knowledge of the body? and and what's in there? It's
1: a really good question. I'm not actually sure what to say to this. You know that, like, I think that the the mind. Is, you know, we live in a culture where we kind of live from the neck up and, and, and it is this kind of detached, very mentally driven and outcome driven culture, very focused on, on productivity and, and it's not grounded in a uh, relational and reciprocal kind of way of being in the world. But why is that, why is that lacking maturity? I'm not sure. It's a good question. Maybe maybe you've got something for us here. Truth, Fairy. Well,
0: you know, I mean, I'm just kind of imagining this right now is that we go through de- developmental phases of movement, right? Uh, initially, we are held. We uh, are dependent on others to locomote. Um, we need others to hold us to, 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 we need to be picked up. We need to be put down until we start to develop. Um, muscles. And we have those five basic movements of pushing, push, uh or, sorry, reaching, grabbing, bringing towards us, yielding and pushing away. And then, you know, we kind of move around on our bellies, we arch up, there's all these sort of basic movements we have. And, and then we crawl and then we start to walk and then we have assistance and we start to run. There's these natural movements and some of these natural movements, we have these interrupted dances where we may not have received the support we needed. We may be sitting too soon, unsupported. So we start grabbing in our bodies because, uh, you know, someone was encouraging us to either sit up on our own or to walk before we were ready. So I think that we've got a lot of developmental pieces in our bodies that kind of sit in there and... So if we're not going back to learn how our bodies can move in a more organic and authentic and liberal way, then that's affecting the way our organs work and the way our brains work. And I, I think something you said, actually, uh, I realized something just now, and I want to go back to talking about your phD, but that we're calling psychedelics mind manifestors. And again, it's a focus on the mind. And yet, you know, Dan Siegel talks about the mind being a flow of information, and that flow of information is actually coming up from the body, right? So I'm wondering if we could consult the whole piece and start to look into these things where people say, oh, my back is sore, or my neck is sore, or my shoulders are sore, but how much of your unconscious body is spent pushing somebody away or stopping yourself from reaching out or, you know, on some level, always running, even though you're trapped, but you're, you're clenching your hip flexors because you're trying to get out of where you are. Right. And, but you can't leave because you feel stuck. Right. So I think that we would be maturing, um, our, our, our relationships with each other, uh, in this field if we actually started to learn our movements and where those movements got stuck for us. Um, And then we maybe we'd see psychedelics less as mind manifesting, but, you know, soul manifesting, uh, full bodied manifesting. Mm.
1: Mm.
0: (laughs) Right. Yes. That's just a thought I had when you asked that. No,
1: that's it. I think that's it. Exactly. And yeah, we, we live in a culture where a lot of the intelligence of the body is not given the opportunity to express fully yeah we kind of suppress our bodies massively we suppress our emotions we suppress our movement you know we're we're kind of forced to hell forced to hold ourselves in a very particular prescriptive way and and we're not we don't have i feel like i was not taught in my development how to have a relationship with my body you know um, to listen to it as if it, it was intelligent. And yeah, in my experience, as I have developed that relationship with my body, I have discovered that it is the source of tremendous wisdom. You know, I've almost, I've come to to flip my attitude where once I thought the intellectual rational mind was the, the higher order of intelligence and the body was this kind of lower order you know intelligence that um needed to be commanded controlled and and um yeah my I, I, it's shifted basically and that's partly from psychedelic use but also just partly from listening to my body i've come to realize there's a kind of ancient intelligence there and that a big part of that intelligence is a relational intelligence how to be with other human beings safely and to cooperate communicate and work together as a team, there is, there is an intelligence in the body that knows how to do that far better than my mind will ever know. So yeah, that's something I'm really passionate about is like, (laughs) um, I feel like we live in a culture, right. Where, where often, you know, someone will bring up something that's troubling them or an emotional difficulty. And I, I, I hear this response quite often where it's like, oh, you should see a psychologist about that. And I just,
0: I just
1: think <laughs> I don't want to live in a culture like that. I, I don't want to relegate my, you know, to sort of turn to my friend and be like, oh, that seems a little, a little dark. That's for your yeah, that's therapist. That's for your therapist, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, yeah. I, want, I mean, I don't yeah. want to get rid of What kind of a culture do you want to live in? <laughs> yeah, we, we can't get rid of I us. I don't to want to get rid to of them
1: completely, but like, Maybe just yeah. a lot less of them or, um, or maybe just like reduce the burden on, on therapists by yeah. the community yeah. taking yeah. more responsibility yeah. for uh, healing with each other because I yeah. don't know, I think that's a more sustainable way to, to look after each other. And I, and I yeah. think that's the maturity piece that I'm really excited about is everybody mm-hmm. getting a little bit on board to create a healing culture. I'm not saying everybody needs to come and become a full blown psychotherapist, but
0: yeah, you know, you know, uh, you're actually pointing to a, a thought I had this week and it's, I've confronted it many, many times with clients is um, you know, they come, they bring, you know, an issue to me, we work with it, we get curious about it and then you know i might hear a client say oh i can't tell anyone like i can tell you and i say well let's let's get curious about that there because you know you're living with your husband or you're living with your partner or your wife or whoever and um, I'm wondering how we might take this home to your intimates, because sometimes what happens is that therapists become replacements for other relationships, but you're having, you're living with the other person you're living with your partner or your mate or your friends. And how do we encourage our clients to actually take that back and have that conversation um, with their intimates, with their friends? And, you know, albeit all sometimes it's not safe to go in, uh, back and have that conversation with the parent because it might be re-traumatizing. They may again, dismiss you. You know, I think that sometimes, you know, we're seen as the confidants, but that's not the purpose of it. It's, it's how do we, you know, encourage clients to go back and actually have that conversation with their partners that really needs to be had, you know? So I think that that, you know, you're, you're speaking to a place where there can be more of a community care and People learning to hold space for each other so that we, it's, we're its we not just, you know, we're friends when it's okay, but we're not friends when it's not okay. And how can we actually meet each other in those times that it's not okay and create these sort of um, surrogate families, uh, you know, families of uh, choice, where in our family of origin, that may not have been possible. You know, I think, is that what you're kind of speaking to? More? Yeah, tribal support yeah that's
1: it that's exactly what i'm speaking to and that's the kind of culture i'd like to live in and i think we're we're on our way i think probably many of the people who are who might be listening to this conversation are are already doing that yeah and that excites me there's a kind of revolution that's happening and that's something that i feel psychedelics are are part of is this this revolution of, of people kind of taking their mental health back into their own hands and into the hands of their own communities, and 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 finding yeah, ways to to heal with each other together yeah. So
0: I'm I'm wondering if and this is just my pet peeve, Dr. T, is if we might change the the paradigm from mental health to whole health to holistic health to the whole person health, right? The the mental, the spiritual, the physical, and the emotional all being because. I, I still think that when we hear mental health, it kind of bounces it up to the top of the head somehow. And, and and if we could see psychedelics and somatic work kind of weaving back in in a way that we can see that how you're feeling is affecting how you're thinking and how you're thinking is affecting how your organs are working and how you're, right? And then how you're thinking is and how your soul is feeling is affecting how your organs are feeling, that kind of more integrative way of looking at it. Yes. What's your thought on that? hundred
1: percent. That's... That's what I think, you know, because I'm a social worker, uh, that's what I think social work should be bringing to the psychedelic field is a systems understanding, which, um, you know, people talk about understanding things from a system lens, right, which is essentially going, okay, cool, there's the body system, there's the mind system, there's the soul system, there's all these independent systems, but they're not completely independent. They interact with each other dynamically. And they all come together. They're kind of what we call mutually interdependent systems, right? And so as we're coming to realize that the dualities that we once held are no longer helpful for us and we need to look at things through that holistic systems lens, which is, you know, something that I think indigenous cultures have known for thousands of years, you look at the um, one of the models that uh, certain groups in Australia, Indigenous Australian groups, use for uh, understanding health. They call it social and emotional well-being. And it's this. It's this beautiful image that you might see of a circle of interacting parts. At the centre is the self, and then there's these dimensions running around it, you know, connection to land, connection to spirit, connection to family, to mind, body, you know, all of the systems in an integrated whole.
0: That's right. Yeah,
1: and yeah. So I think that that. So yeah,
0: yeah. So it's a, it's interesting, you know, how we default to saying mental health when it's really all of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a question before I forget because I mean, I've been holding on to it for a bit as we've been talking. I'd love to hear from you um, in your PhD research. What people have been saying about how to how to foster a relationship with clients, and what does that mean from an ethical point of view, I'm wondering um what those conversations have yielded for you mm.
1: yeah that's a great that's a great question Something that just like pops into my mind as you say that is um I had a conversation with a clinical psychologist recently and it was It was after a psychedelic event, and they were very professional and clean and like you know kind of like as much as I probably shouldn't say this like the stereo my kind of stereotypical expectations of a clean psych like a middle aged or youngish white dude who was well dressed and you know all of those stereotypes very well spoken clever guy, lovely guy. And we ended up having this conversation about the difference between internal family systems and schema therapy. Because in my head, you know, I, I was thinking, I, I've often kind of viewed schema as a little bit pathologizing.
0: Say more about what that is. I, I'm not I'm not familiar with schema therapy. Can you say something for our listeners about that? It's,
1: it's just a, a modality of, of therapy that it, it is kind of like internal family systems in the sense that um, there are these internal schemas or models that we carry within us that are, you know, from our early childhood experiences and things like that. Certain default kind of programs or yes, yeah, schemas that we have and i've always found that that particular modality of, of therapy to be a little bit pathologizing in the in the language that it uses whereas internal family systems are found to be quite empowering in contrast you know where it's like this is about you contacting your own inner healing intelligence this is a you know a process where it's like about you contacting yourself you know that self energy um, and building relationship with parts of yourself. Whereas in schema, it can be a little bit more diagnostic, a little bit more like we're going to, you know, we're going to run this test on you. and We're going to see what what schemas you have and what maladaptive schemas you have, quote-unquote, um, that we might then, mm. you know, work mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, I had this chat with this guy, yeah. nerded out about therapy for a bit, yeah. realised that IFS yeah, yeah, and yeah. schema are much closer than I realised, you know.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: towards the end I think we kind of got to this point where I was like I think I asked him what his core you know like what what his core way of working is and he was like do you know what it is is it's really fucking authentic connection I get so real Mm -hmm. with my clients I get so honest with them Mm -hmm. I share about my life Mm -hmm. I you know we talk about my schemas as well as their schemas we talk about schema chemistry Mm -hmm. you know I it, for me, it's a hundred percent about building a really um, strong relationship with them. Everything else is a bonus. Yeah. That's at yeah. the center. Yeah. And I was just—I was yeah. a little bit taken aback. My stereotypes had been yeah. totally challenged.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought yeah. that's wow. great,
1: and it was so—it um, was heartening and validating because that's how I think, you know. And that is a theme that comes up in my conversations about this somatic work is that um, a lot of it building relationship is about getting real with people in a smart way and a very particular kind of
0: in a smart way self
1: disclosure mm-hmm. yeah yeah where yeah where it's like uh, I think you, you know you talk about this calling attention to the to the unseen to the things that are happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. about a uh, self-disclosure, uh, of your story as a therapist, but rather mm-hmm. self-disclosure of your, you know, your, your live affective state and what you're noticing yeah. in the client and in yourself and calling those dynamics into attention as they present themselves in the room with you and the client, which can be yeah. extremely vulnerable thing to do, um but a powerful way to build relationship.
0: That's right. And, you know, it's the more I think about it, the more um, complex it is because, you know, I think about, you know, those moments of positive transference in a medicine session where all of a sudden you are this first person that has ever really met this person. You may be the first one that's ever – met their grief or their terror or their anger, that kind of sense of realness for them. And then and then there's this feeling like, wow, no one's ever done this for me. And at the same time, it's like we hold the humanity of that experience. But then at the end of the day, when the client's saying, oh, we should go out for coffee or, <laughs> or go out for dinner or lunch, there's that little moment of going, okay, now how do I maintain this Deep spiritual connectivity with his client, and then at the same time in a gentle way, knowing that hey, maybe this is not the time to do that. You know, I I can hold this piece with you, but you know, going out for dinner or or something, other may not be appropriate at this time. So it's a comp like I think with psychedelics, it's so much more complex. Because you are spending so many hours in a room with someone and they're experiencing full on presence with you, full on like connectivity. And at the end of the day, you may not be going out for dinner with them or going out for lunch with them. And it's like, how do we kind of usher people from this profound experience into how can you now start to imagine? this with your community or with one person right and this is the tricky part of building relationship because that relationship doesn't necessarily mean it's going to continue outside of the room but that you might see each other in a social situation or you might see each other and how do we still create that warmth and that positive regard with each other knowing that it may not be appropriate for anything else to happen outside of this you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah so intimate doing this deep work with people. Yeah. And yeah.
0: And people don't want it to end. Right. Some days are like, oh, I just want to be with you all day. I don't want this to end because you're fully there with someone. And it's like, who wants that to end? And that you have to actually transition because you are not, you are not the mother, you are not the father, but you are temporarily a person that's really opening yourself. So I, you know, I had to work with that jarring feeling of like, wow, we've got this thing here and this thing is going to end. Mm. And how am I going to like take this into my community? And I can't have you every day. And then you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah,
1: I do. Yeah, it's simultaneously a sign that the work that you're doing is deep, you know, because you're going into those transference yeah. places. And that's exactly if you if you're doing deep relational repair with someone, then um, then you've got to go there. But then, how do you how do you yeah. safely exit that? Or or safely close that off, I should say. Close
0: that, exactly. And then that, I think that's that balance between, you know, the relational container between two of us and then helping that person transfer that presence that they've experienced through you into their own bodies for themselves. Mm. Right. And then, and then eventually into uh, a sense that there could be a community presence. You know, I think that that's where we have to move it from the one on one into that being something that I can embody. And then into a community care, right? So that it's not just dependent on one person and that one relationship, right? Yes.
1: It's, so, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because I'm, just, I'm connecting dots here that, you know, um, I think this is probably one of the major risks in psychedelic work, underground and above ground, But particularly underground right now, you know, I'm hearing a lot of stories about practitioners who are are perhaps their nervous system is getting overwhelmed or perhaps they're unable to create that closure after the ceremony and maintain an emotionally intimate connection with people who they've done medicine with afterwards that can then uh, lead into, you know, the realms of sexual intimacy as well and that's where it really gets um murky and so there's something i think really valuable there around like how do we educate how do we not just educate but also support practitioners to effectively close that ceremony at the end um because uh, you know the, obviously this the risks of sexual harm that's you know that's terrible and we need to you know make sure that that doesn't happen but even a step before that just not closing that effectively and maintaining that posture of of mother or father and maintaining that transference you know consciously or unconsciously i think that um can can be um, potentially harmful and so how do we how do we close that off and so i guess that's a question for you okay. how do you balance yeah
0: well um that? I, I really hold that container that this is the time that we're doing this work together, you know, and, um, you know, and that how can I, uh, how can we work together to find the ways that you adapt this into your daily life? That That's what obviously integration is called. Um, but who can you imagine this kind of an intimate experience? How, how could this intimate experience inform other relationships in your life, right? And I think that, you know, there's a really great um, passage in the book, uh, The Ethics of Caring um, by uh, Kyla. Oh my goodness, I've forgotten her last name. This is me always on on punk therapy. I can't remember titles and names, but here we are. Here we are. This is me. The book is called The Ethics of Caring. And she talks about in the book Um, that when we as practitioners aren't clear about our motivations, so when we're not clear about our desires, our longings, our wants, the things that are missing for us, you know, what our deepest unfulfilled needs are, that's when the problems begin. This is when we're going to start to wobble and there are going to be, you know, places where we cross ethical lines. And, there was a really great passage that I read the other evening that spoke to this idea that if you as a therapist aren't getting enough social interaction, then what you're going to be doing is using your clients for that social interaction. And that's when we start making the session about us. And so we can't substitute, like psychedelics, it can, it can become kind of fun, this idea of, wow, doing a psychedelic session with someone, right? And that you get this intimate time and you get this long time. And it's sometimes what we've longed for ourselves as therapists is to have someone with us in it for an entire day. But that's when we have to get really, really clear about why we're doing it. Not to say that psychedelics are fun. They're hard. And some of those sessions are really hard, like both for therapist and client. Uh, They can be challenging, but we have to be so careful about balancing our lives and get in and be clear about our motivations and our own unmet needs so that we are taking care of them, so that they're not coming in to the to this client session as a place to be social or feel that fulfillment of connection. As soon as we're coming in, because we need connection, that that's going to impact a client session, and they will feel the burden of that unconsciously. Or, 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 or the other thing is really big is that anytime we want for a client, we're setting an agenda, and they're going to feel the pressure of that on some level, and they might shut down. You know, it's like, so many therapists they want something for the client i really want you to have that big breakthrough and that is unconscious burdens for clients they're going to feel it and they might go into a shutdown and then there we are again with a disappointment both for therapist and client so these are these are this is like an ongoing um yeah, really ongoing um inventory for us as therapists if we want to do this work with people
1: yeah yes yeah I, I, uh, you've reminded me that this is probably another one of the core themes of my PhD is going to be, uh, if you want to be a psychedelic therapist, then, um, one of the things that, that you want to work on and develop in yourself is an embodied aptitude with boundaries, you know, the capacity to recognize when you're triggered in a state, um, through a transference dynamic between you and the client. And then to be able to navigate that without sort of becoming trapped or like without the body, your body hijacking your mind and getting caught in that, you know, to be able to notice it and and even potentially name it up if it comes up as a way of creating more safety. So, yeah, I mean, it, it could be as simple as something like a therapist getting triggered into like a, almost like a friending response where they're concerned that the the session was not everything that the client hoped for and so they they hold on and they keep they they instead of closing the session at the 1 hour or whatever the predetermined time was they push it out and the client's kind of like in this awkward state where they're like I'm not sure should we are we is this ending or isn't it and and the therapist is
0: yeah yeah, it's, it's yeah. very good because essentially the their therapist is trying to feel better about their own yeah. work right? They want the client to feel a little better when they leave, yeah. right? Instead of like, no, this is where we've landed and you know, right. That we have to be really comfortable with the discomfort that we have this agenda where we might want someone to feel better, but they don't, they don't feel better right now. And so how can I actually meet you in the fact that you're not feeling any better and you had expected to, and that's that whole piece around managing expectations. Like, I'm really appreciating right now um, the NARM model, the Neuro Relational Model. I'm in a basic course with that, and just really hit home to me about how do we put uh, self agency? How do we keep directing it back to the client about what is it that you want? What it, what do you want to experience? Because. Um, it is so easy for that agenda to take over for a therapist about what you want for that client, especially when it's hitting home for you is something that you want, right? And so like, how do we keep resetting to drop agenda in order to go, okay, so this is what you wanted at the beginning of our session. How is our work cycling us back to what, what you want? And what would that felt sense be of what you wanted, right? So I'm really... I'm really enjoying that uh, idea, um, and and not what I want that I want you to feel what co-regulation feels like. But is that something you want? Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and that comes comes back to that need for a self practice. You know, to to yeah. be able to hold that space of kind of like a non-attached love for your client. You know, a love that says, "I'm here for you." um, because I want, you know, you to be able to grow and expand, not because I need you to do something or change in a certain way. And, and in order to hold that, that kind of love for someone, you've got to be doing your own work on yourself.
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think that we can fall into this, um, trap of feeling like we have to, um, you know, we have to check ourselves. So we're not just faking it either. Like, you know, when something it comes up for us and we're bracketing and, and we're holding that bracket and we, you know, we realize that we're a large way into a session and a client might ask you, are you tired? And instead of bullshitting them and saying, no, I'm not tired, I'm here for you all day. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm tired too. This is hard work. And to kind of be able to say that instead of like looking like some pristine therapist that isn't getting tired in a long day, say, yeah, I'm tired, too. What if we just took a little rest here together as well, rather than, you know, feigning interest? I think that's like a a really, uh, you know, destructive, can be very destructive when we're feigning interest. Yeah, especially as the day is growing, right? And so, mm. you know, how do we then in that moment kind of reset and say, I'm here to support your intention? And, and is what we're doing here getting you towards your intention? And if not, let's pause and reassess here for a moment. Yeah
1: you know yeah it's funny hey the the expectations that are brought into the into the therapy room all of these hidden assumptions around what therapy looks like and and um and what it doesn't look like and 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 the variety of of people that come in with with different expectations Uh, i've been thinking lately that I i should spend more time negotiating what what is therapy with a client um before I, well, what is yeah? You're right. It.
0: What is therapeutic? What is healing? Yeah, right? yeah. What is healing here? What's
1: helpful? Yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. You had a term that you uh, mentioned when we had a little pre-conversation about tonight, <coughs> audience. We do that. We we have meetings, <laughs> Doctor T and I, and we discuss what this is going to look like, and then we free flow. But I'm just going to bring it back to something you call. Um, embeddedness can you say more about what you mean about that for your phd yeah. something that you're wanting to hire? yeah i think
1: it's another core theme that will probably be in in the write-up um and uh when you bring it up it reminds me of something you spoke about earlier which was the work of i think it was dan siegel perhaps that that we're more than our brain that our consciousness is more than our brain that that um, our mind is more than just neural networks. It's the whole system. And it's something that Antonio Damasio kind of suggests, um, I think in a few of his, um, talks, he sort of, I remember one thing I read of his, he was like, it seems much more plausible to me that the mind is the consequence of both neural and non-neural activity, which I thought was really interesting.
0: Mm, Beautiful. Um, Beautiful. Because
1: yeah, what that suggests to me is that yeah, that, that our um, being, our our self, our brain is is truly embedded in a network, and it it sort of knocks this whole like um, this idea that the self is located within the body out of the water and goes well, maybe not. That's not as clear as we thought it was, um, and so uh, that's it's not quite what I'm talking about with embeddedness, but it, it's an important um understanding i think f- for this concept what i what do i mean by embeddedness well
0: did you make up this term no oh
1: no i mean it's, it's a, it's oh, it's a, it's a, a real word, read. but it's just, I'm using it for my own, I'm co-opting it for my own purposes.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, that's what I thought you yeah. were doing. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 So
1: it's like, I, I've taken, you know, we all know what embeddedness means generally, but I'm kind of trying to coin this psychedelic embeddedness, which is this idea that, you know, in this in this culture, part of being a human is that we do live in a world of abstraction sometimes, in the ego mind, in the, you know, the default mode networks, high levels of abstraction that kind of um, create this discrete sense of self, which is separate to the world, right? That's part of being human. And it seems to me that simultaneously we are more than that. You know, we're also our bodies and our body is um, embedded in the natural ecosystem, right? So we are so much more than just that That mind. We are embedded. Both our mind, as much as our mind might almost like play this little trick on itself and try to convince us that we are a separate self, even that's not true. Even the mind is embedded yeah. in the body, which is embedded in the system.
0: Exactly. It's that Damasio, I think he's the one that said mind, no mind. Yeah. Did you come across think that? So. Mind, no yeah. mind. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, so I think that, I guess what I'm saying is that what I have discovered is that I think psychedelics, you know, and in particular, you know, mushrooms and ayahuasca and San Pedro, maybe not as much MDMA. And I'm not so sure about ibogaine and and some of the others, like 5-MeO. I haven't read too much about that, but certainly those, those first three that I mentioned, um, Seem to simultaneously enhance, you know, not always, but um, often enhance our sort of interoceptive capacity, our like ability to. They kind of they turn the dial up on our bodily awareness. Right, it's amplified, and suddenly we're like, oh my god, I'm I'm in a body, I am a body.
0: Exactly, Holy I'm shit. in a body, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's not just a mind manifesting, but it's like integrating body parts. You know, it just, I, I recollect a, a client I worked with some months ago and she said, I have never considered my feet. I have never been in a relationship with my feet. I have never considered my elbows. Like like, like there was like this reintegration of the whole body of the skeleton all those pieces that those skeleton, our skeleton is our support system, right? It is an inner support, and I love just like well, through my work with Sharon Stanley is just like some of her somatic meditations have been like you know you know notice the the sternum how it protects the heart. There's an inner protection. There's already a beautiful way that the sternum takes care of the heart, and so you know when we realize how incredibly resourced we already are, even even those of us that are holding complex trauma, that. We then less need to go outward to get our needs met, which we tend to do. We tend to go to our partners or our colleagues or even our clients to get our needs met. Then we can start looking towards the body and realize I've got these incredible bones that are supporting me. And even if you know I have a disability, even I if I have a missing limb, I can remember the energy of that. You know, so uh, we have so many things that want to support us. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, even a shell is the shape of the inner ear and how can we relate to the supports in nature? Could I imagine, you know, sending sound through a shell that would come back and resonate towards my own eardrums or all those pieces that um, we can find in nature, those supports that may have gone missing within ourselves for reasons of illness or shock or trauma so, yes. uh, yeah, there's a real interconnectivity yeah, there. Yeah,
1: and that, that yeah. speaks to that um, that aspect of embeddedness, which is that we're yeah embedded in a natural environment as well, and that our system mirrors and reflects the systems around us as well, like the shell and the inner ear, and also just the, the biology of our cells. You know, you look at a plant cell, you look at a human cell, and there is a lot of similarity there. You know, there, there's some uniqueness, but we share a common ancestry with all life on Earth, and we are so... Mm -hmm. so connected Mm
0: -hmm. hearing your
1: story it reminded me as well just like speaking of kind of the this idea of these resources that we have access to you know all the time Uh, I remember an ayahuasca journey I had once where I felt this energy come up from the base of my spine like coming up Mm. like a snake up my spine
0: oh the kundalini yeah and it
1: was like it was as if it was It felt like some other entity like ayahuasca herself had grabbed my spine and was like, wow. you know, and I felt my yeah, spine. Yeah, I
0: grabbed your spine, to be, to right? Like, Not your mind.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I felt like my spine was another being, you know? Wow!
0: But what, I, yeah, what I've come yeah. to
1: realize is that that was just me finally connecting with the intelligence of my spine. Oh, that amazing. my spine is that. Beautiful. It is this remarkable intelligence that's holding me and, and carries so much.
0: The whole central nervous system, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 But amazing. because
1: I was amazing. so disconnected to that when I first experienced it, yeah. I, I experienced it as alien or other. Like something else was grabbing oh, wow. me by the spine, you know? Right? So, yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Well, that deference to others as experts has grabbed our has disconnected us from our deep intelligence or deep knowing. And it's so these these medicines are allowing us to come back to re-experience our own knowing, our own deep intelligence. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. That's it.
1: So yeah. yeah. So embeddedness is just this idea that psychedelics turn up, they amplify our connection to our body and our connection to nature, which to me are the same thing they're two sides of the same coin you know your body is just nature Mm -hmm. inside the skin and uh, everything else is just nature outside of the skin and we are and and psychedelics amplify our connectedness and it's not just connectedness to those things because that still Mm -hmm. implies a separateness like i am connected to that other thing but rather uh, the sense that we are that i am the body Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. you know i feel it i you know i am it (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. the idea of embeddedness.
0: Nice, nice. If you're just to kind of sum up this PhD, three years, research, interviews, codes, themes, just kind of like your wish, just what you, what you wish for right now, Dr. T, at this moment as you undertake this massive project that you want to put out into the world, just your wish for it,
1: mm.
0: what you want right now. I'm just curious what you want <laughs> from this.
1: Well, I think uh, I I want to be a part of the movement that, that helps to build the tribe that we spoke about before of people that, Can help heal each other that are, you know, yeah, that are savvy with how to use psychedelic medicines. And so that, like, I can go through life with my friends and loved ones being held and being understood and being healed through all of the inevitably hard challenges of life that are going to come. And I I want to have. I want to have that sense of connectedness and belonging, and I and I, I hope that my PhD and the work that I'm doing around embodiment and psychedelics, will be a contribution to the to the map, I guess, to the path uh, of learning that we all need to go through right now in order to to mature into that way of being. You know, moving moving forward. I, yeah, I kind of like I kind of look at the world and go, oh fuck, we're in a lot of trouble. And um, what are we going <laughs> to yeah, do? Yeah, and I've yeah, yeah. Kind of yeah. landed on on psychedelics yeah. as as one of the important pieces of that puzzle to to creating yeah. a humanity mm-hmm. that's sustainable and that that um, makes life really beautiful. So,
0: well, I'm just so excited to excited when this comes out when your research comes out. I know like just the depth that you have explored this and the incredible care with what you're doing, and it's uh, so needed. So. Thank you so much, Doctor T, for sharing where you're at with it, and and get our audience excited about when this comes out.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm still I'm in the depth of the unknown quite a bit yeah. right now, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to maybe doing this interview again when I have uh, finished the PhD. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we can do that because it's punk therapy, and we get we to can, do what we do what want we on want. punk therapy. Exactly. <laughs> 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 I just uh, want to thank all the um, listeners that have been giving us feedback and um, been hearing that this podcast is changing some lives. That's really beautiful, and so thank you. Uh, you know who you are who wrote those emails. We really appreciate it and. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please uh, give us a rating on any of the platforms that you're listening to. I don't know why that stuff helps, but it kind of does. Not that we really need it. I mean, I do believe that this will reach the ears that need to hear it and the hearts that need to feel it. Um, but we're really grateful for uh, your feedback out there. So here we are signing off. Until next time.
1: Until next time.
0: Have a wonderful day in Down Under there, Dr. T.
1: <laughs> Likewise, Madam Truth. <laughs> big love everyone ciao
0: that concludes this episode we hope you found it meaningful and integrative
1: remember to subscribe via apple podcasts or spotify and kindly share the link with your friends and colleagues. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at infopunktherapy.com. At
0: and remember to punk your inner wisdom.